0: On the last episode of Death by DVD.
1: You about ready to go to our number ones of 1980?
0: You hear that? What is that? Oh uh, no. It appears ninjas, for some reason, have come out of the ductwork. Well, why would ninjas be interrupting this extremely long episode? It probably be two parts. Uh, the ninjas are attacking! However, will we finish this episode? Oh my god, it really might have to be two parts! Fuckers, yeah, watch
1: some. I'm throwing a grenade. We'll have to finish the episode next
0: week. Kill them all, everybody. And now, the thrilling conclusion to Death by DVD's The Best of 1980. Well, I think that's the last of the ninjas who for no reason interrupted this over three hour long episode, forcing us to release it in two parts.
1: Whoa! What <sighs> and
0: now that's the last of them. Well geez. I uh I think we can continue the show. You about ready, Nash? You got a little blood on your face. Thank like, nah. you. Well, let me get it. All right, you go, ratty-chopping, right madman. All right, uh, where um, are you ready? All right, where were we?
1: And my number one on best movies of the year 1980. It is a classic that not many people appreciate or watch anymore. And it was the major coming out for a uh, brave new voice in filmmaking, and that is David Lynch, The Elephant Man. He, and he was a simple roofer, a just like Michael film. Ironside. Say what?
0: He was a simple roofer, just like Michael Ironside. Before making The Elephant Man, he was working as a roofer before uh, Mel Brooks picked him up to do this, and he had done, what, just Eraserhead?
1: He had done Eraserhead in college.
0: So that was it. I mean, that was and that was it.
1: That was it, and I, like, Brooks wanted to make this film and it's a very simple story of a man with an abnormality and his place in society and how society accepts him or doesn't accept him and really just an opening up of the humanity with that can be within us all and the humanity in someone who is like so far down the chain of a line of importance and is still like has a great spirit i guess you could say
0: like i mean it goes back to touching upon our last two movies that same uh, idea of love well not cruising but the ninth configuration the same strong message of love and acceptance and to quote the beatles again all you need is love because that truly is who joseph merrick was or john merrick in the film but his name was joseph merrick i think in real life and the, uh, the the journals that this film was based on uh, wrongly referred to him as John or the doctor himself wrongly referred to him as John
1: and like the character itself played by John Hurt is a it's a very base simple character that required hours and hours of makeup and the fact that I believe
0: 8 hours a day and then 2 hours to take it off
1: the fact that David Lynch was able to take this, albeit what seems like a very plain story, and just infuse it with so much heart and drama just through, again, much like Raging Bull, through the art of filmmaking, make it so much more of a compassionate and enjoyable story to watch just through imagery, sound, music, and having all those things working so well together to make this brilliant film which, um, I mean, can really show you the humanity that's within us all. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is great in it. Most of the acting is great in it. The fact that Mel Brooks just let David Lynch pretty much do what he wanted to do, shoot in black and white, um, do a lot of the, the weird gags that David Lynch had kind of created in an eraser head just the, the way what he was the
0: very this. famous quote that was applied to this movie that Mel Brooks had taken it to I think Paramount Studios and had shown them the, the motion picture and they suggested that the surrealist beginning and ending be taken off the movie and he said something to the effects of "You know, we, we did a bi- business venture with you and we showed this to you to let you know the respects that we finished the business venture not to let you fucking tell us what to do and you know that's one of the reasons mel kept his name off the movie so people wouldn't interpret it as something that it wasn't and he a was comedy, very
1: because mel brooks was known for comedy and this is by all means not a comedy film
0: he was very very for um not just the artistic integrity behind david lynch to be uh the first thing shown in this movie but the story behind it which again It differs very much from its source material and the true story of Joseph Merrick, but it, on an entertainment and heartstring pulling value should at least allow you to see something from another standpoint, and not even from a horrific freak, but somebody that just wants love, which I think at its core is every human being at their own just wants love or to be loved or accepted or to understand and feel love, and that's what is pivotal with, with the entirety of this movie is, is John's want. Not so much to be accepted, but to experience uh, the quote-unquote love a, a normal, compassionate person can get, and then you have to take into consideration uh, looks and ego and, and, and why this story is driven somewhat like you know the movie Mask. You've got to take it from somebody that is pretty much disfigured past the point of love or what is considered lovable.
1: And the fa- and the the hope of the story even carries through to the end to his ultimate death because he's dying the entire movie. And he doesn't just die because of his condition. He commits suicide. He smothers himself in his sleep because, and this is the hopeful part, he had never been happier in his life. He had finally felt what it was like to be a real human being. And he wanted to hold on to that feeling into the afterlife. And it's just kind of a a beautiful message at the end of the the story that this man who seemed less than human, i'm not a I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. I mean, that's the famous quote from the film, and that resonates in all cultures around the world that all we want to be is to be respected and treated as human beings. And if you can't do that, then are you even a part of the the human race? because he may be disfigured. he may be like majorly disfigured, but that is that. Guarantee him any less results, any less anything than any other human deserves in this in this world. Does he deserve just to be like thrown to the side because like he like nothing can really help him anyway? So do we just throw him away? Do we just kill him? And it's and it's just an overall very powerful message and done with, albeit a very surrealistic director and him being able to use all of his combined powers with the powers that is the story, the powers that is the, uh, the filmmaking aspects, the acting and even down to the script writing to all form. What is a goddamn fucking masterpiece of a movie.
0: In the long run, I think the invocation of you know what people are is one of the biggest messages that is underlying with this. And, Again, something like *Cannibal Holocaust* or uh, *Cruising* uh, for the long run, the message isn't incredibly positive because even you know the the Anthony Hopkins character states at one point, "Am I really doing the right thing? Am I helping him? Am Am I doing something, or am I just as bad as the salesman that was slinging him through the countryside, allowing him to get sick? And in real life, it wasn't as uh." negative as it was portrayed in the film Joseph Merrick's life wasn't as as haphazardly abusive as they portray things to be but for the integrity of what David Lynch uh showed us and 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 gave us it it gives you this idea that despite equality in like something I was discussing earlier with race everyone that's white is supposed to be oh, we're the we're the equal race we're the white race or whatever and then you have uh this disfigured horrible person that you decide to throw aside so where is your Aryan perfect race now, and and it just points to a lot of things that weren't brought forward with, um, I guess a lot of the lies behind who Merrick was, and they decided to go into this aspect. And David Lynch, you know, shows like the caretaker letting people come in late at night and abusing him, and they make it seem like this incredibly poor abuse story on him because he's a freak and, uh, you know, is xenophobia almost lashed upon him as to where the actual story is a little bit more heartwarming, and the questions that Lynch is asking you with this are the same things that he's asked you with Twin Peaks, uh, Eraserhead, Mulholland Drive, who are you, what are you, what resides inside of you, and are you really, truly willing um, for, you know, transcendental acceptance, and not the meditative aspect like transcendental meditation, but the same thing as the ninth configuration, can you really accept these things into your life, love, acceptance, if you're willing to kill for your kid, why can't somebody else?
1: Yeah, and all, I think it what's interesting is how the movies we've picked have all fairly lined up, and most of them are about the human condition and how we fit into this world, how I mean, even in our darkest times, there is hope and there is positivity. I mean, we've talked about this on plenty of Romero shows and all that thing, but if you're not moving towards anything more positive than really what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? And why are you so afraid? And why are you so negative? Because we all are just human beings. None of us are animals. I mean, technically, if you want to get really technical, yeah, we're all fucking animals, but you know what I mean? We're not monsters. There's no such thing as a human monster. There's just people. There are people who make some bad decisions. And depending on what that decision is, how much do they need to be punished for that decision? depending on moral characters and a lot of different factors. But, I mean, how far do we really take our hatred for another human being? Because that's generally, no matter what their religion is, their race, any of it, why would you have these feelings and really what's your problem?
0: Well, I mean, most people want to take things as uh, the survival of their race or the survival of their kind, and uh, the human aspect of that is the survival of all of us. So the question I think that you truly have to ask is, what do you want out of the human race? What do you want out of all of us? And if anything, wouldn't it us to be living in uh, harmony? Wouldn't it to uh, be accepting and loving of each other so we can work together and be happy with each other? But none of these things can happen because of pride and ego and pretty much how society is built up, and you have this incessant need to be proud of things that aren't even achievements. You know, people are proud of being white. Well, that's nothing you earned. That's nothing you did. And is there a fault in being proud of that? I absolutely think so. I mean, even to go back to Proverbs, this is something I have always taken from a George Carlin bit, Pride cometh before the fall. Perhaps you should be pride in things that you inherently do or or can earn and not put other people in front of that between race or disfiguration, sex or gender, or your lack of understanding of those things. You can't look at somebody and be afraid of them because you don't understand something. You have to accept that upon yourself that you don't understand something. Don't let fear be the fucking mind killer. I mean, don't let it...
1: Or Lynch movies.
0: Yeah, don't let it completely destroy you. you. You you, can take this. You can be Paul Atreides. You can let the sand trout be part of your body and become god emperor as long as you let love in. Uh, don't quote me on all the Frank Herbert stuff, though. You might not be a, <laughs> a giant sandworm man.
1: Don't get too deep into that dune, baby.
0: Still, jokes aside, there is, I think out of all of the movies picked tonight, an immaculate depiction of right and wrong, and that's certainly shown with The Elephant Man. And at its core, you might not like David Lynch. You might think he's a bullshit artist, but still, this movie deserves to be accepted as just one of the best. I mean, it is a great, not just showing it's of emotion, most approachable
1: but film. By far. Oh, yeah. If you don't like David Lynch, I mean, this is the one movie you can, like, appreciate Lynch, and you don't have to get on with his weird bullshit if you don't want to. I mean,
0: this shows you who. There's he is a little weird bullshit, but not a lot.
1: No, I mean, it, but it, it's like. It got nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. I mean, good luck on anything past 1980. Uh, this and. On to get nominated for anything.
0: Well, I believe this and Raging Bull were the two most nominated movies for 1980, and they both lost out to the Robert Redford film. So, I mean, if that says anything about the acceptance of art and black and white photography in Hollywood, it, both of these movies kind of lost out. And one thing that's interesting is this movie didn't win anything. It was a best picture nomination and did not take anything home. And if did it went
1: makeup, I think it won like a makeup award. Wait,
0: uh, makeup didn't exist at the time, and they well, that's actually right. yeah they they fought and they that, they not started next year. Yeah, well, it was because of um, the Elephant Man that they started the petition and they fought to get this recognized and and looked at as you know like look at uh, the sp- not just the special effects but the crew behind it. So let's get this done as an Academy Award. And the next year, you know, if it had been a category, it certainly would have won.
1: Yeah, I mean, because uh, American Werewolf was the first official winner, if you don't count Planet of the Apes or a couple other things like that. But Wizard of Oz, I think. Makeup award. Um, but it's just – it's a tremendous film. A lot of people haven't seen it because it's disappeared from the cultural lexicon of American cinema. It's, I don't know why it disappeared. Like, um, But then again, was it Ordinary People? Isn't that what won Best Picture that year? Yes. Um, Like, that's completely disappeared from the cultural lexicon as well. So, I mean, like, what has remained is Raging Bull so and the blues brothers so yeah. technically those probably should have won well and I cannibal
0: mean. holocaust i mean those are the one i oh, think yeah. out of all of these pictures cannibal holocaust is probably the most memorable and the uh out of 1980 something that will long outlive all the others i mean people will see and remember the blues brothers but cannibal holocaust will continue being circulated because of its devious nature
1: All right. Well, I don't have much else to say about The Elephant Man, because it fucking speaks for itself. I know a lot of people haven't heard of it at this point. Track it the fuck down, watch it. It's an amazing film. It's amazing filmmaking.
0: And it's a mesmerizing piece with John Hurt as an actor and his portrayal of this character from the speech impediment to the walk and, of course, early special effects with uh, the prosthetics and... They were going to do a whole full body thing, but what's really remarkable about this is they used the actual casts of John Merrick's, Joseph Merrick's body. And so these were as accurate as as pretty much could be at the time, and there's just something about it. There's something about knowing that this man underneath all that somehow still had to— find the innocence and beauty of Joseph Merrick, who truly seemed to be an incredible human being of all rights. I mean, uh, studying him and looking to the the true man on top of watching the elephant man is a pretty remarkable thing, and like we discussed with the ninth configuration, there is an uh, uplifting aspect to some of these things. Um, like, uh, one of the mistakes, not mistakes, but one of the issues that I felt was with Altered States was the lack of charisma and the journey of the lead character, but when you take something like The Elephant Man, all you have is this wonderful transcendental journey of John uh, becoming, and it's not what he's becoming, he's just becoming, and the acceptance and the feeling of love, and there are just certain parts of the movie and especially the end, you feel so heartbroken watching him happy and it's not a sad heartbreak, it's Something you even see with inside yourself, and as you touched upon, he essentially commits suicide. Uh, it seems in real life it was very similar, that the one thing that he wanted his entire life was to sleep like a normal person, and because of his abnormalities, that, which today we still don't know what caused, or what... Uh, syndrome. They believe that to be part of it, but at the same time, they've taken his bones recently and some flesh samples that were found to have survived the uh, the, the Nazi bombings in World War II, and it, it's not 100% certain. He just wanted to sleep. He just wanted to lay down in bed, and that's, uh, at the age of 27, how he actually perished. He fell asleep as a normal person, and it seemed to crush or break his throat, and he committed suicide to be one of us. So you look at yourself, you hate yourself, you could be the Elephant Man. Imagine that pain.
1: All right, Hank, let's finish it off. I'm done with with the Elephant Man.
0: So we'll bring in something that is even more painful. A movie that has also pretty much been stripped from the the common lexicon of very famous or very well-known movies from 1980s. something by a guy that I think and I'll arguably say, I think is a a stronger artist than somebody like Stanley Kubrick. I can watch, uh, this is a Nicholas Rogue movie, I can watch Nicholas Rogue and feel uh, quite, uh, it's not that I can't (laughs) feel the same things through somebody like Stanley Kubrick, but there's a way that Nicholas Rogue brings and presents things onto the screen that are, are, are just a massive difference. And his format and his style as an editor and a director speak to me on a more emotional level as to where somebody like Stanley Kubrick was very precise very reptilian he was he was cold he was uh, almost like a computer of a man you know and it's funny you know d- he wanted to do a, a a science fiction film based on AI and to me when i watch his movies i always think of Stanley Kubrick as something like HAL just a very Precise computer that only can formulate certain things, and somebody like Nicholas Rogue is a very chaotic and uh, he directs in an almost anarchy. His scenes and his editing and his presentation is overwhelming but also underwhelming at certain aspects. Where, like we've discussed with violence for the sake of violence and then uh, a specific presentation of violence, Nicholas Rogue's attempts at being underwhelming are like. Stabbing awful scenes of violence and what I'm discussing now is bad timing from 1980 a movie that is mostly an underwhelming sigh of anxiety and arguing uh, very similar to something like raging bull in fact I think both of these movies pair together as a pretty cool comparable thing because a lot of them is the transition of love and hatred and. The emotions and possession and and wanting to own your future or wanting to own the idea of reality or somebody else's, um, like, pertaining to having a future with them or having this white picket fence idea and, like, the American dream, the whole Horatio Alger thing of falling in love, getting rich, having kids, everything being wonderful, and it's delivered and given to you in – just a, a, a painful essence. of. I and mean, like you mentioned earlier, if you've been in love and ever wanted to die for somebody, you would understand how the ninth configuration is supposed to feel to you. If you've ever been in love with somebody and been absolutely broken and hurt by them and not good enough, bad timing will fucking wreck you. And that's, that's the point. This movie was called a sick movie made by a sick person for sick people. And there is a little bit of truth to that, but sick is the wrong word. This is a broken movie for hurt people who have been broken, and Nicholas Rogues certainly delivered uh, to the point. This movie is a crucifixion for anyone that has been cheated on or abused or beaten or, or lied to, and even beyond that, delving into something as hideous as rape. Out of all the movies we've discussed that have Brain-eating and brain-ripping and horror and the the atrocious nature of life or the non-acceptance of love. Nothing touches it on the amount of vile disgust that truly is love that bad timing uh, presents and shows to you. Because you can let the love in, and you can accept love, and you can accept people. But at the same time, you can make that love an unwholesome Nasty drug. It's just the same thing as heroin. Uh, love is something that has to be measured and taken care of and precisely managed because it be- can become an infatuation that will become a disease. And uh, you know, comparing it to something like shivers, which uh, the the movie even makes a statement that love is a strange disease between two aliens. Bad timing is a representation of uh, love between two aliens, two people that truly love the idea of each other and that is something that people generally aren't willing to admit uh, especially when bad timing comes into place with their lives and relationship ends. Did you love the person or did you love the idea of the person? And there are two very big distinctions between these two things. The idea and the self and the reality and the soul. All of these things mixed together in a uh, a hallucinatory flashback uh, driven movie of a woman who is overdosing and her boyfriend takes her to the hospital, and he's being grilled by a police detective. And the movie is shown through flashback sequences, uh, letting you know that she just wasn't committing suicide. Spoiler alert, you end the movie with one of the most dismal, nihilistic rape sequences that disgusts me almost more than something like I spit on your grave. Just because how the fuck it happens and why it happens. And then it leaves you reeling and questioning the actual reality and why all of this happened. And then you get this beautiful, pretty bow beau wrapped at the end of the movie where the lead character recognizes the woman he raped years later in New York City and she completely dismisses and ignores him. Again, driving forth, not necessarily a nihilistic point that Nicholas Rogue worked with throughout his entire career, but something like um, Walkabout. That... It's just the display of love. It's just the display of the lack of love. It's just the display of emotion and the strange complexities in which human beings are and how we cannot deal with things. Even like um, the the film he made with Mick Jagger, the entire point is people not being able to come to terms with what they are, who they are. That's a theme that, outside of... uh, which is uh, the the children's the road doll film Nicholas Road made. Everything deals uh, entirely with people not being able to come to terms with what's inside, who they are, what they are. Bad timing to me is just, uh it's just the the most broken, hurtful fucking story I've ever seen. It's just dismal. But at the same time, there is such beauty to be found within that much ugliness.
1: All right, okay. a lot. Uh, okay. The film kind of alienated me.
0: Oh, I think uh, it alienated everybody, though.
1: As, as passionate as it makes you feel, I feel as alienated. I understand the purpose of the film. I understand the story of the film. First of all, Art Garfunkel, not cast well. Bad choice. Uh, Donald Sutherland, much better choice. Um, well, this was Teresa the third film that Nicholas
0: Rhodes made with um, you know, big rock stars. He did—it's not called Fascination— he did um, that with Mick Jagger, and then he did The Man That Fell to Earth with David Bowie, and then Bad Timing with um, Art Garfunkel. And what kind of makes this even worse is a lot of Garfunkel's performance isn't fictional. His girlfriend at the time committed suicide while filming this movie. So he was overseas filming this. His girlfriend kills himself. It, there's a lot, of, a, a lot of him actually you know, driving through in this character.
1: I didn't feel it at all. Which is questionable. Is he that upset? Well, I mean, I I just... Like, I I could not relate to his character. I didn't think this was a bad movie, but by any means, any stretch of the imagination. um, I think the editing is the one thing that saves it from being just, like, kind of super average at times. Um I thought Harvey Keitel was not great.
0: Uh, you know, uh, um, you don't like Art Garfunkel, but Keitel was my biggest disappointment, and it's not so much— oh, He was terrible. I mean, he's supposed to be playing an Austrian, uh, and it, it, you know, that's not so much the problem is the lack of his accent. Um, you bringing up the editing, though, I, I said this to you in text messages a few days ago, so I definitely want to say it on the show. I will argue that this is the best use of the Who. I like this more than Tommy, and it's what, like two scenes where they're they're blasting that one scene where Garfunkel...
1: Or Tom Waits. Tom Waits works fairly well at the beginning of the film as well. Well, it's
0: Nicholas Rogue, so that's something you have to take into consideration, is he was a bit behind counterculture before counterculture, and that... You know, starting the movie with something like Tom Waits sets the mood. You can understand immediately that this isn't going to be a Woody Allen romantic, witty comedy that ends with some happy puns and everyone getting together. That this is going to be dreadful.
1: Like I most identify with Teresa Russell's character in the film. Like her performance spoke to me, and I understand exactly where she's coming from. And I just felt that Art Garfunkel was a fucking prick. The entire movie he was...
0: So, I mean, I'm, Um, I'm a little, I mean, not so much confused, but, I mean, I'm taking the same things from you, though, and I think if you identify or understand the Art Garfunkel character, you probably have a lot of questions that you need to ask yourself, but that's what struck me, and my pretense bringing this movie up is you will understand it or you'll be able to understand it if you've been significantly hurt because I think despite the story being shown through the Alex Linden character, Art Garfunkel, you're supposed to be focusing on Melina and, and the, you know who Teresa Russell is. and The whole point is these people fall in love and she's a free person. She's even married to another man and, and he loves this at first. He loves her nature. He loves that she will drink with him and party with him. But as... That goes away, you realize he loves the idea of her and not her, and it becomes this idea of uh, this is my possession, and you have to be this way because I love you. I love you, and your emotions and your feelings and your love and your thoughts don't matter because I love you, so I have to have it my way, and you you get this, this asshole, this bitter dick to show you— I mean, and you can take it in any, like, the ninth configuration format of life, of what an opposing force is. It doesn't necessarily have to be love. It could be a jerk at your job or or anything that's opposing to you. But this is a character that is demanding the all of you when you never gave them that in the first place. So the Alex character is, you know, pretty much uh, the ego demanding more and more and more and not letting go until you finally understand that she didn't commit suicide. She was just killing the idea that he loved so he could finally fucking get over it and she could just not be a part of it because if you love the idea of something so much you've just killed who the person was you crushed who they were and their ego because you don't love them you love an idea of them
1: yeah it's just I I think that a lot of these themes and issues were handled a lot of this, like, I don't want to say better, but oh, like a more interesting way in the movie Possession. I think that, it, that these are very similar movies. There's a double feature for you this in Possession, which is if you want to fucking kill yourself, watch these two movies back good to back. Good
0: time to cry. Um,
1: but I think Possession handles them, and especially even throwing in the more metaphysical elements that end up being in Possession that it, it makes the things to get a little bit easier grasp on because I did feel it was a little overly long at times. Um, and like I was saying, the editing is what makes a lot of it work because if you told it in a linear fashion. I don't think my, like, I don't think my attention span would help as much. I'm not, I'm, not trying to shit on this movie but by any means. I A just, linear like, aspect wouldn't
0: tell the story. Me. I mean, because the the point is the the disintegrating values of their trust or Alex's trust with Millennia. Uh, it's them not dealing with each other, or her trying to deal with herself and him not dealing with who she is because he only loves that idea of her. So showing it in that linear aspect would have just been like, okay, well, they're obviously not a couple that needs to be together. But when you present her dying and then go back to the very first kiss to the 30th argument, you get this format. What wasn't handled well, I think, is the inserts with Harvey Keitel grilling him because none of them are – Keitel's character just doesn't seem to care outside of trying to solve a crime. And you you need an I think kind of the whole
1: point of that was to – that's a little bit of bait to try to get you to start questioning things within what has happened as opposed to just this thing unfurling as it, that's why I'm like with the editing being the way it is, is what makes the movie work. Um, Because if you did it in in any other way, it just would have, it just, I don't think it, again, I just don't think it would would work that way. I think, I don't think the story would have worked at all if you had done it that way, but like he was smart enough to, do the editing the way he did. I just also think that at times um, some things played out a little too long. The Hargai tell thing lets us know that there's a mystery that we need to be unraveling as we go. So it's, I mean, so I think he helped, his character helps give a little bit more intrigue to the story that's going on than besides just the relationship woes that are going on. Cause I like you're not to know any different that anything horrible happened until he gets involved. Like why are like all these questions? And if the police element wasn't there, I just don't think the story would have been quite as engaging as it is.
0: I think the who done it aspect was kind of delivered to you because you you know from the beginning Alex is an asshole and that he's done something wrong, so you get this Harvey Keitel character and the indication that Alex Art Garfunkel has. ...committed some sort of crime, but it's like Clue. You don't know what it is. You have to slowly let it unveil until you understand that it's not a matter of just rape, which is horrific enough as it is. But the things he did before that are just as bad. What he did to her and her mentality and the control that people have when you have this idea of love are, are damning and, and, can, and can kill I mean, you you love something, so you you let it go. That's the whole story, and most people aren't willing to do that, and most people want to do that whole Bukowski thing, find what you love and let it kill you. But what about the other person, or what about what you love? That's not healthy. Your fixation, your your lack of working together. Love is two things, working and combining together. It might not necessarily be in a romantic level, but it's almost like an organ. It's organic. It's it's working and pumping in unison together. It's understanding and compassion. It's not, I love you because you're hot and, and, and I just like having sex with you and I have fun with you and we have a great time. That's not love that's a, a skin deep idea an aspect of feeling the idea of uh, emotion masking who you actually are and not compatibility so you have these two forces uh diving into each other and fighting each other until finally it consumes one of them and it just so happens it's not who wanted the love that you know you find what you love let it kill you it might destroy what you love and in this essence it truly did
1: and I think a lot of my issues could have been handled just with some recasting. Like, I, if it was Donald Sutherland playing that role, I think it, I would have immersed myself much more than I did. I just, there's something about Art Garfunkel that is just very standoffish to me. I, I like He seems like a fucking alien in the movie.
0: Well, I think that, too, is a big point where the location and where the movie takes place is, is him being an American teacher, and several even scenes show him teaching his class in dual english and a uh, german so he isn't a part of the culture and neither is she that all of these people are aliens where they're they're at and and their origin and he is even more foreign than the others because obviously he can't comprehend uh, love and it's it's not just sexual gratification i mean they they have a very compassionate relationship that is beautiful at some points but it comes down to his idea of who she is and what he wants for himself not what is better for her or the both of them uh working as one it's not compatible and it's the forcing of such is i think what like you know even with that scene where he's walking outside and who are you by the who hits with that really really heavy you know bass part toward the end of the song It's like a radical realization. He even knows he's a bastard. He even recognizes he's doing something wrong. But for his own gratification and his own completion, he has to keep doing this, almost like a, a neurotic tick. Like, he has to do it. He has to control her. And the last thing that this person needed was control. They just needed to be accepted and loved like John Merrick. They just needed someone to understand them and not alienate them. So... I think that is a lot on on Nick Rogue as a director and, and a cinematographer forcing Art Garfunkel to be alien and to be away from everyone because, I mean, you've got that scene where they first are introduced and she puts her leg up and he has to crawl under it. And while you're even watching the scene, it drives you crazy of, like, just walk under her leg. Why are you just do it? Just, oh, my God. I mean, she's flirting with you. Walk under her leg. And he refuses to until finally he taps her and, like, slowly slouches under it, and it's his lack of cool. He's no James Bond guy. He's not good-looking. I mean, we all know who Art Garfunkel is. He's some balding, weird-haired guy. Even in 1980 in his 20s, he wasn't some sex symbol, and it was... Ooh, he was not in his 20s. (laughs) Well, I mean, the character is supposed to be in his late 20s or so, but you're, you're supposed to be given this example of, of human nature from the fact that he's not some beautiful sex symbol. So I think somebody like, and I'm not saying Donald Sutherland's a sex symbol, but he's much more handsome, he is much swabber, he has a much more smooth tick as an actor as to where somebody like Art Garfunkel, his uh, lack of skill or his his lack of precision as an artist and an actor in that facet worked, I think, because it alienates him even further from the other actors.
1: Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just it, it, he just felt so cold to me, and it was hard for me to get into the mindset of this guy. I, I need a, like, Art Garfunkel's a black hole of charisma, and I just need an who are actor you, Paul that Simon? Really, like, even even just, and not, he doesn't even have to like, what they say, who has a lot more control over their instrument than Art Garfunkel does. And like, someone like Donald Sutherland has control over his instrument just the way he uses a look it's not even in dialogue it's just the way he, like his body moves and Art Garfunkel just I, it's just I don't know it's hard for me to get into any of this it's hard for me to even see why Teresa Russell is even interested in him as any a fling even it's just like who is this fucking toad? He's a creep and you've put up with this creep for just the Well, look movie. at all oh, Why are you
0: putting up well, with him? Well, you just look at reality in general, I mean, that's most situations. I mean, you look at just just life, that's what happens. It's just some non-charismatic situation. You can even look back at previous situations in your life and wonder why was I with that person? And I think that's some of the casting choices with using Art Garfunkel and not just because Nick Rogue liked to use musicians, which he did 3 times. That was a bit of a a thing for his career, but it was using just a, an incredibly normal person who, at the same time, wasn't just a normal person. I mean, Art Garfunkel was at the top of his career around 1980, or, you know, Simon and Garfunkel had broken up and they were both going into their solo careers, but regardless, both of them were, were doing very, very well. So you have a lot of reality with that character of somebody that is insanely famous but isn't necessarily attractive and that's kind of what life is you you know you, you get into these situations and you look at yourself and you go back and you remember being 22 why did I date that person God it was so awful and in this essence you have it on film of you know all of these things happening why did this happen why did she date this person why did she see this in this person these are all questions you ask yourself everyone eventually at some point asks themselves and love life dating hatred whatever happens so all of it wrapped up into this movie and in the pacing in which it was wrapped up into, I think Garfunkel was, I mean, I Sutherland would have been great, but I, I like that he's not attractive. I like that he's alien. I like that he fumbles. I like that he doesn't know what he's doing because it's real to me.
1: I don't think it's so much, it's just, it's more like I can't emotionally engage with this character. I don't like, I don't feel any of the things he's feeling. I don't even feel the like. When he, because he does want to control her, I don't even feel that coming out of him because it just—I don't think he has a, a, strong enough control over himself as an actor to indicate these things, through his performance. And I just, I—I I don't know. I just think I, I could emotionally engage with an uh, another actor playing that character, but it would have been, it'd be very specific. I mean, we're splitting hairs here, really, on what it is, but. It might be what Nicholas Rogue was going for. I, I
0: kind of think that was with Art
1: Garfunkel. But I, for me personally, I just couldn't engage.
0: With I him. think that's a lot of the point, and that's what Nick Rogue was going for. Because you look back at his other films starring musicians, the the Mick Jagger role in his first feature was very uneven, was very alien, and a lot of what made that was, uh, you know, Mick hadn't even done the the, the Australian film yet, so his acting he was a virgin at it he was a nervous sheepish celebrity pretty much playing himself and for all intents and purposes the role pretty much was Mick Jagger in hiding then you go on to something like um, the man who fell to earth it's again a, a very scared and timid performance and and both of these things work for these previous films David Bowie is supposed to be an alien so he doesn't know how to act his Lack of charisma as an actor really played forward because that's what he was supposed to be. And again, that worked with the previous film with Mick Jagger. And when you enter something like this, you needed, I definitely agree, uh, a different asserting point with who the lead was. That a a stronger, more perhaps masculine performance was needed. But again, I, I really enjoyed just how empty this character was because I think that's who Alex was. He was an empty man. He probably wasn't happy being a doctor. He wasn't happy with anything he was. He's just gone through the motions of life. And uh, sexual gratification, controlling, just being in charge is what this person is because they have nothing else. They don't care about their day job or their life or who they are. They care about what they can control at the end of the day and having such an empty performance and such a, I don't know, scared deer kind of... Just nervous action from Art Garfunkel, to me, helped really, you know, put the the nails in this crucifix.
1: I don't know. This would be the second in the uh, double feature of Art Garfunkel's a fucking creep. Movies, Because in carnal knowledge, he's kind of equally creepy. I, I, I maybe just don't like Art Garfunkel. <laughs> I think it might just
0: be a personal thing with me. And this, surprisingly enough, is the third rated X movie on tonight's show. I believe all three rated X features were mine. I was wrong with yours. But Cannibal Holocaust, Cruising, and Bad Timing. All of these were initially given a rated X. Um, I, I think... Cruising carries. Have you noticed
1: something, though, between our two movies?
0: They're all very comparable with the essence of, of human emotion and what they are. Most
1: of mine are very much about hope, and most of yours are not very much about hope.
0: Well, I definitely think there's a hopefulness that is shown at the end of bad timing when he gets out of the car in New York City and he looks up and he sees her and she completely ignores him because that gives you at least a bit of hope that these scars will heal. She'll never be the same. She'll always be broken and destroyed over this, and him reaching out and yelling for her lets you know that people don't care. You know, uh, just using it in common terms, an ex could come back into your life ten years afterwards and constantly, you know, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you. Do you have to give that attention back? Unless you feel the same amount of love, or you just... ...feeding into something. So you have to, again, with all the movies we've brought up... ...ask yourself uh, the acceptance of love you're willing to have in your life. And this essence, you've got the character that completely dismisses it... ...and moves on, but you've got something like The Ninth Configuration... ...where the entire point was not moving on... ...was allowing that love in because you've never moved on... ...or allowed yourself to realize who you are. So each thing, even like Raging Bull, like Jake LaMotta... ...he wrote the story and Scorsese shot it. He was there every day on set admitting what he was, who he was, how he acted, how he handled these situations. Is he a man that has accepted love and grown on? I don't know personally, but it certainly seems that way, especially with how he handled writing his own story. He didn't choose to write his own story as him being the greatest person on Earth. He wrote it as, I'm a piece of shit, but I was a pretty good boxer. Read it if you want to. And sometimes I think that... Holds more true than something uh, something like Cannibal Holocaust, where you've got these very important messages of, of right and wrong and what things are supposed to be. But at the end of the day, isn't the true message, isn't the thing acceptance, isn't the thing dealing with your problems and dealing with who you are and what you are and like Alex and bad timing, somebody that does not deal with it, somebody that refuses to deal with their own problems. That's not what you want to end up being.
1: I don't think I have anything else to add, Hank. I think we've gone way past three hours at this point. This is going to be a
0: hefty, hefty, hefty show. So yeah, the best of 1980. God forbid, are we going to do this linear? Let's do the best of 1999 next.
1: I've already got my 81 list done, but we can go to another year. It's fine. I don't know. I think my 81 list is a fucking doozy.
0: Maybe we should skip to another year and uh, really fuck with the audience, or we can just do a completely different. Are we Are we just doing the best of years for the rest of Death by DVD history?
1: No. <laughs> we still got video nasties. And beaches. We still got uh, regular off shows. We've got Blood Sports.
0: We eventually will get to our long-running review of beaches with Bette Midler sometime soon.
1: We'll get back to King of the Basement.
0: Yeah.
1: You hate King of the Basement. I hate
0: everything. So that was
1: (laughs) noted by your list of films tonight. Blues Brothers is inspirational, at least. The only
0: movie given a a formal let's-go-see-this-by-the-Catholic-Church, the the Blues Brothers, then Cannibal Holocaust, and Cruising, and Bad Timing. (laughs) It's not that I'm a negative guy. I really think the whole point is something like the Ninth Configuration. I think out of all the movies on tonight's list, that's probably one of the most beautiful films, and it doesn't matter.
1: And I also think a lot of it has to do with respect— respect to different places in lives, different age groups, and where you are, like, where we are both currently at in our lives.
0: I mean, it doesn't so much matter if you take something like the Ninth Configuration from a religious standpoint or not, but the overwhelming message that I think you get with uh, the, the, the traveling of who Stacey Keach's character is from the beginning to the end is something that really should be taken into consideration. And again, like Cannibal Holocaust, there is a message of attitude and your perception that uh, transcends with all of these movies, from cruising to bad timing. You might think yourself the hero, but you might be a villain in somebody else's story. You truly don't know who you are uh, in other people's eyes, and you can't always make that a point to look at in your life, but you have to take it in consideration.
1: Alright, we gotta wrap this fucker up. This is getting ridiculous. We gotta stop this. We gotta stop. So, it.
0: next week, we'll be back, I guess.
1: Yes, it's an off week.
0: Well, the ashtray's full, the bottle's empty. That was the best of 1980. Tip your bartender and server goodnight, pleasant tomorrow. This has been an episode of Death by DVD.
1: On the next
0: episode of Death by DVD, I. Alexander Nash hunts down the head of the Ninja Clan who attacked the show, while Howlin' Mad Hollywood Hank goes undercover as an Asian mafioso to get all the missing pieces. Tune in next time. Death by. Recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.